At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We all have questions, and we're all looking for the answers. But sometimes, navigating the answers to cultural issues through the lens of the gospel can be challenging. Join us for our Asking for a Friend series, where each week we'll answer tough questions and provide you with gospel-centered answers that you can share with a friend. Amen. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you all. Send you greetings from the church in Royal Oak. I'm grateful to join you guys in worship and uh, just express my thanks for your graciousness uh, with the team this morning, helping us get prepped and praying together. Really grateful for your hospitality and love and grateful for uh, the community that we have across this region, Um, the community that is Woodside Bible Church, the collaboration that we get to have Maybe you guys don't feel it um, quite as much as we do as staff members and campus pastors, but uh, Jeremy and Stephanie have been a huge blessing to uh, my family, and uh, Jeremy, a huge blessing to our group of campus pastors. Just his wisdom, his leadership um, really feels invaluable at this point, Uh, so you guys make sure you encourage him and keep him around as long as possible. We cannot afford to lose our brother right now. Um, So I am uh, preaching on what other topic would you preach when you're a guest speaker? Hell, right? (laughs) Completely appropriate. Um, No, actually, when I preached this a couple weeks ago at Woodside Royal Oak, I wore a pink shirt because I was like, maybe I'll like lighten the mood with, you know, some soft tones um, as we get into what can be a pretty heavy topic. But we are um, continuing in the sermon series that we've titled Asking for a Friend. So our marketing communications team scoured social media, fielding questions from believers, from non-believers. What are things you wonder about when it comes to the Christian faith? Uh, We compiled a list of about the 20 to 40 most common ones, and then different campus pastors selected ones to work on. And um, a few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Jeremy preached for you guys on, Is Anxiety Sin? Um, And then, no, sorry, two weeks ago, uh, that was a week ago he preached for you guys on that. Two weeks ago, Jeremy preached for you, I'm sorry, Jacob preached for you guys. Too many J's. Um, What does God say about singleness? So those are the two questions you guys have looked at so far. And this morning I'm asking the question, how can a loving God send someone to hell? How can a loving God send someone to hell? Uh, But as we approach this question, I want to sort of, Uh, pull back and think about the question um, and why it is so troubling for so many of us. So perhaps no other teaching in Scripture confronts our contemporary culture like the doctrine of hell. So in the modern world, you think about it, we declare statements like, live and let live. You do you. Be yourself. And these slogans encapsulate the current cultural mindset, which sociologists refer to as expressive individualism. And expressive individualism says, you live your life and I'll live my life. You do you and I'll do me. Don't let anyone else try to tell you who you are and what to be. Be true to yourself. Find yourself. Follow your heart. All of that 
is expressive individualism. And this ideology and experience is captured most famously in the Disney movie Frozen and by its main character, Elsa. So in the first Frozen movie, there's this important turning point kind of scene when Elsa famously announces, I was singing it last night with my daughters, she famously announces that she is going to let it go. She's letting go of the good girl everyone expected her to be. She's turning away, slamming the door, doesn't care what they're going to say, let the storm rage on, the cold never bothered me anyway. And then I think in the most important lines of the song, she says, quote, it's time for me to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I am free. And that moment in the film is really Elsa's new birth into the modern autonomous self. She makes this declaration that she will be who she determines to be. And there is no right or wrong in this process. There's no rules for what she gets to choose who she will be. This is the sovereign self. She will not conform to what society tells her to be. She will not conform what her parents tell her to be. She is her own judge. She is her own rule maker. And the reason that moment in the movie is so powerful is not only because the music is great and the animation is phenomenal, but it's also because the message of the song perfectly captures this widespread, deeply held ideology within our culture, namely expressive individualism just felt so right to sing that song with Elsa because we are expressive individualists. And this is why the doctrine of hell and the biblical teaching about God's judgment lands so awkwardly on modern ears. Now, by contrast, when we talk about God's love, it is much more palatable for modern people. But when we talk about God's judgment and that we will be held accountable to His law, and that we don't get to live a consequence-free life of our own choosing, well, that just does not fit within the narrative of expressive individualism. When we talk about hell and that we will pay an enormous price for our sin apart from Christ, that just does not square with the fully autonomous sovereign self, a self that makes its own rules for how it chooses to live life. So hell and God's judgment is offensive and confusing for many of us. Now, by contrast, many of our neighbors in the Middle East who are dominated by the religion Islam, they're troubled by just the opposite. They're not over there wondering to themselves, how could God send someone to hell? They're wondering, how could he not send someone to hell? Like, look at our sin. Look at how messed up our world is. Of course God's going to send someone to hell. And that is because... They have a different cultural perspective than we do. They're in a part of the world dominated by the religion of Islam, and Islam prioritizes justice over everything. And so they wonder just the opposite of us. They're troubled by just the opposite of us. How could God not send someone to hell? And so what I'm trying to do is help us pull back and question the question. Why are we so troubled by this question, how could a loving God send someone to hell? And what I'm trying to help us see is None of us are neutral. None of us are bias-free. 
We all have presuppositions that we bring to religion, that we bring to life. The question is not, do we have presuppositions? The question is, are we aware of our presuppositions and are we submitting them to the Word of God? Or are we trying to rule ourselves by our sovereign reason? So I'm trying to question the question. I'm trying to help us see why this question troubles us so much. But nevertheless, I want to offer three responses to this question in light of who we are as expressive individualists. Three responses have emerged in my mind that hopefully will bring clarity and insight and nuance to how we think about God and hell. So first, how can a loving God send someone to hell? My first response is that justice demands it. Justice demands it. So let's start off for a moment thinking about the attributes of God. So the attributes of God are his characteristics. They are his qualities. And as I've mentioned, in our current cultural climate, people are prone to emphasize the attribute of God's love. Think about John chapter 3, verse 16. This famous verse, God so loved the world. It's worn by athletes on their wristbands. It's written on billboards by the interstate. Or you think about another well-known phrase from Scripture, God is love. That one's from 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. It's just this succinct, simple statement communicating who God is. God is love. At the same time, and here's where we're trying to communicate with nuance, even though we greatly appreciate the truth that God is love, we must also acknowledge that this verse doesn't say God is only love, as if that were his singular attribute. No, God has many qualities, many characteristics. And along with being loving, the scriptures also teach that God is righteous. God is just, and he acts in accordance with his justice. So it seems that what often happens is we narrowly isolate and focus on God's love, neglecting so much else that God says about himself, namely that he is righteous and at times righteously wrathful. Furthermore, I think we can say that if God were not righteously angry and wrathful at times, then he would not be loving so one author puts it this way, quote, Loving persons are sometimes filled with wrath, not just despite of, but because of their love. If you love a person and you see someone ruining that person, even they ruining themselves, then you would get lovingly angry. Righteousness and love do not cancel one another out. In fact, if you claim to be loving, you must also be righteous. The two are not separate from one another. For example, think about what's happened in our culture over the last five years with the Me Too movement. There's been this sweeping movement to hold accountable and call to justice these numerous powerful men for their sexual transgressions. Politicians, executives, athletes, military officers, musicians, actors, pastors, by the hundreds were exposed for abusing their power to take advantage of vulnerable people. And as more and more of these stories have come to the surface, what's been our response? Righteous indignation. 
Our collective response has forced politicians to step down, forced corporate executives to be fired, and forced famous actors to be canceled. And I think we can say that it was the loving thing for us to do as a society to enforce these changes. It is loving and righteous for us to say we will not tolerate this abuse of power and all transgressors will be punished. So even in our increasingly secular culture, a culture that's committed to moral relativism and expressive individualism, even we can't help ourselves. By holding these perpetrators accountable, we are showing that love and justice can coexist. We're showing that love and justice must coexist. Otherwise, love is not love if there is no justice. Love is not love if there's no justice. And so it is with God. Yes, God is love, but he is also just. And in love, he executes justice. Psalm 145, verse 17 Mary read it for us earlier. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and he is kind in all his works. And this word translated here as kind can also be translated as love or loving kindness. So in the biblical author's mind, there's no contradiction between God's justice and God's love. He is righteous in all his ways and he is lovingly kind in all his works. His righteousness and his love coexist. Now, at this point, you may be thinking, okay, CT, I understand. God can be loving and righteous, but is hell really necessary? Is hell really an appropriate response for God to sin? Why does he have to punish sin so severely? Well, think about it like this. Imagine that one of you guys right now stood up, walked down front, came up on stage, and punched me in the face. Now, this would be pretty intense, pretty terrible. Definitely would be a great preacher story, so it would eventually be cool, but it would also be illegal, and you're going to get in trouble. There are cameras here if this happens. Now, also imagine this. That's scenario number one. I get punched in the face. Also imagine this. A few weeks ago, President Biden was in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania for his granddaughter's graduation. Imagine then that at some time during the service, someone likewise stood up, walked over to the president, and punched him in the face. Well, immediately, that person's going to get destroyed by secret service. They may even get shot, but they certainly will get pummeled and dogpiled on. So now, assuming that the presidential attacker survives that experience, who do you think is going to get the harsher sentence? The person who punched me or the person who punched the president? Each attacker did the same thing. They physically assaulted someone through punching them with their fists. It's the exact same crime. The only difference is the someone who got punched. I got punched and the president of the United States got punched. And I am just a dude, but he is the commander in chief. He is the leader of the free world. And our legal system intensifies the punishment for an assault on the president compared to an assault on me. The legal system provides a weightiness and a significance and a severity to crimes against the president compared to crimes against me. 
And this is not too different when it comes to God. Friends, when we sin against God, we are, as one theologian put it, committing cosmic treason. When we sin against God, we are violating His holiness. We are repudiating His law. We are rejecting His goodness. When we sin against God, it's way more significant than punching me. It's way more significant than punching the president because God is so everlastingly glorious and awesome and wonderful that when we sin against Him, which we all have countless times, there are eternal consequences. If you punch me, you may have to pay a fine. If you punch the president... You may go to jail and have to pay a fine, but when we sin against God, the stakes are much, much higher. So I must ask, what is your estimation of your sin? Do you take your sin seriously? Are you humbled by God's holiness and glory? Or do you take your sin lightly? Do you treat it flippantly? Because by only and always focusing on God's love, sometimes we excuse our sin and just give ourselves a pass to do whatever we want, even if it's sinful. But church, along with being loving, God is also righteous. In fact, as an expression of His love, He acts righteously. And we are going to endure the divine scrutiny of his righteous judgment. So I urge you right now to judge yourself. To take your sin seriously now. Let's bring our sin to the light now in repentance and humility. Let's acknowledge before God now that our sin is worthy of hell. Our sin violates God's eternal holiness and thus it deserves God's eternal judgment. So how can a loving God send someone to hell? Well, what we see in the first point is that the question should really be turned on on its head. How could a loving God not send someone to hell? Because the loving God is also just And the someones who are sent to hell have committed terrible crimes against God's righteousness. So first, justice demands hell. But secondly, unbelievers choose hell. Unbelievers choose hell. So many of us have in our head this caricature of hell that plays out like this. God uh, God gives us our lives with a certain amount of time. And during that time, we have to make the right choices, we have to do the right things, but then in the end, if we have not made the right choices, if we have not done the right things, God angrily hurls our souls into hell to suffer forever. And as we pitiably fall into the hellish abyss, we cry out for mercy, but God shouts back at us, ha 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 ha, you're too late, you had your chance, now you gotta suffer. But again... This is much closer to a caricature than it is the actual truth because it is just as true that we choose hell as it is that God sends people to hell. For example, think about Romans chapter 1. It's this well-known and important chapter from Scripture in which the Apostle Paul is teaching about sin and human depravity. 
And Paul uses this certain phrase multiple times throughout his discourse. So listen to how he describes our experience of God giving us over into sin. This is Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 26, and then verse 28 as well. The apostle says, Although humanity knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, since humanity chose to rebel like this, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. For this reason, since humanity chose to rebel against God like this, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Then once more in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So you see that phrase there three different times. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God gave them up to a debased mind. So this is not God saying, off you go to hell in misery and sin. No, rather, this is God saying, if you want to worship and serve created things, if you want to exchange the truth of God for a lie, if you want to live life without me bothering you, then hey, I will give you exactly what you want. Oftentimes a similar dynamic can play out when we're young and we're trying to figure out the way the world works, our parents will try to help us. They try to graciously instruct us. They try to patiently guide us into the good life. They try to lovingly warn us about the dangers in life. Maybe the most common example is when our parents are trying to teach us about not touching a hot stove. So mom is cooking, the burner is hot, and toddler you is mesmerized by the orange glow of heat coming off the burner. Mom looked at us and she could see it in our eyes, right? She knew we wanted to touch that thing. So she warns us. She tries to teach us. But we don't want to do things mom's way. We don't want to submit to her authority. We want to rule ourselves, do things our own way. So mom doesn't like put a cage around the oven, right? She doesn't like strap our hand down when she's cooking. No, she gives us relatively free range. If we're going to touch it, we're going to touch it. And in that way, she relatively so gives us over to our own stupidity. I fell for the iron as well. I don't only touch the orange burner, I also touch that shiny iron on the ironing board. Just the steam and the shine from the iron, I had to touch it. But this is very similar to the way God hands us over to our own sinful desires. God doesn't slam our hand down on the hot oven and force us to burn. No, he says, if you want to touch the hot oven, touch the hot oven. If you want to reject my word, reject my word. If you want to live for yourself, live for yourself. And friends, that's essentially what hell is. Hell is an endless experience of getting exactly what we want. 
Hell is an endless experience of getting exactly what our selfish desires want apart from God. Hell is forever living by our own word, not God's word. Hell is forever living for ourselves and not for God. And that is a miserable way to live. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, puts it this way. He says, There are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And then there are those to whom God in the end says, Thy will be done. All that are in hell choose the latter. So Lewis says, those are our two options. Either we can say to God, Thy will be done. I submit my life to you. I believe in your word. I trust in your son. Or God will say to us, Thy will be done. You choose to submit yourself to no one but yourself. You choose to believe in your own word over mine. You choose to trust in yourself instead of my son. Thy will be done. In other words, Lewis goes on to say, quote, No one in hell doesn't want to be there. No one in hell asks to leave. Those who are in hell don't want God's heaven because that would mean they have to take themselves out of the center of the universe. That would mean they would have to take themselves off of the throne of their lives and let God be Lord of their lives, let God be the center of their lives. But that's exactly what the unbeliever refuses to do. Pastor and church planter Tim Keller writes this, quote, Hell is the trajectory of a soul living a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on and on forever. Hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. So Christian, this is a big task. This is a big part of our task in evangelism. This is a big part of our task in communicating the gospel to non-believers. Just as much as we're warning people that God will send them to hell on judgment day, we are also trying to open their eyes to help them see that they are already living a hellish life. Unbelievers are already living apart from God's gracious rule. They are already experiencing the painful effects of being handed over to their lust, their greed, their idols. One of my seminary professors shared that oftentimes when he's sharing the gospel with someone, he'll ask them what the most important thing in their life is. He'll ask them what's the purpose of their life. And whoever he's talking to would say, advancing my career or growing my family or making enough money to retire early or purchasing a vacation home or whatever. And then after they gave their answer, he would ask back, And how's that working out for you? How's it really working out for you to have something at the center of your life beside God? Is that thing giving you the joy you want? Is that achievement giving you the peace you long for? Is that relationship giving you the security you crave? So you see what the professor was doing, he was trying to get the unbeliever to examine their lives, to reflect on themselves so that they could hopefully start to see they are already living a hellish existence. 
They are already getting a taste of the emptiness and misery of what hell will be like unless they give their lives to God. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, then I now ask you those same things. What is the most important thing to you? What's the thing you worship above all else? What's the thing you most easily give your money to? What's the thing you most easily give your time and attention to? What's the center? What's the purpose of your life? And how's that working out for you? Does the money really settle your anxieties and give you the peace you long for? Do your relationships in marriage and with family really give you the love and connection you want? Does the cottage up north really give you the fulfillment you hoped it would? And perhaps the emptiness and unsatisfaction you already feel in this life is a sign of the endless emptiness and unsatisfaction you will feel in the next life. If you are already feeling like, man, I was made for more than this life. Nothing on earth can satisfy me. If you are already feeling like this, perhaps it's a sign for you to lift your eyes off the things of the earth, to lift your eyes off yourself and to turn to the God of heaven in humility and repentance and faith. So how can a loving God send someone to hell? Where again, we're kind of questioning the question. It's just as much that people choose hell that it is that God sends them there. So when it comes to hell, justice demands it. We choose it. And finally, Jesus experienced it. Jesus experienced it. So this is, in a sense, the good news of hell. Jesus lived the life that you and I should have lived. Jesus lived a life of perfect, blameless love, righteousness, and joy. And then after living such a beautiful, glorious life, Jesus died the death that you and I deserved. On the cross, Jesus suffered the curse of sin. On the cross, Jesus suffered the wrath of God. On the cross, Jesus was forsaken, condemned, and judged. The righteous fury of God's wrath was unleashed against Jesus. In other words, on the cross, Jesus experienced hell so that you and I wouldn't have to. The apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, quote, Jesus himself bore our sin in his body on the tree. The thing that made us worthy of hell, Jesus bore it in his body. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree. And the apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3 writes similarly that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming accursed for us. On the cross, Jesus experienced the punishment and the curse of hell so that we wouldn't have to. So I wonder if you've ever had someone and you love them so much that when this person got sick or when something bad happened to this person, you thought to yourself, man, I wish I could trade places with them. 
I know when my wife was pregnant, she had numerous nights of discomfort, was unable to sleep. Of course, when she went into labor, there was a lot of anguish, and I, as are all other fathers, pretty much helpless, just spectators. And I remember thinking that at least for one night, I wish I could trade places for her. I'll take the discomfort, I'll take the sleeplessness so that she won't have to. And for you, maybe you've had a friend or a sibling or a child that you've seen get sick and you've thought to yourself something similar. You love them so much that you would trade your good circumstances for their bad circumstances. You would trade your health for their sickness. Well, friends, that is exactly what Jesus has done. He traded his fortune for our fate. Jesus has the fortune of perfect righteousness and holiness. And through faith in him, God declares us righteous. And his spirit begins to make us holy. And what did Jesus get in return for these gifts? He suffered the curse of sin on our behalf. He endured the hell of the cross so that you and I wouldn't have to. And so I plead with you. I call on you to trust in Jesus. Trust in the one who died so that you could live. Trust in the one who experienced hell so that you could experience heaven. So how can a loving God send someone to hell? This is a really good question. And it helps us to press into Scripture, but we also see that when we do press into Scripture, it challenges a lot of our presuppositions, our presuppositions about God and our presuppositions about ourselves. Because the loving God is not only loving, He is just and righteous. And His love requires Him to be just and righteous. And we have violated His law. We've broken His commandments, offending Him and hurting ourselves. So God's righteousness requires a just sentence. But hell is not merely God's just sentence for sinners. It is also the freely chosen fate of all who would experience it. And God simply hands us over to our sin and says, your will be done. But gratefully, God is reaching out to us now. He's calling out to us now. He's saying, there is another way. There is a way to truly experience life now and to avoid hell forever. It is by trusting in Jesus. It is by receiving His grace. It is by being filled with His life-giving Spirit. He traded place with us on the cross, tasting death, experiencing hell, so that we wouldn't have to. And so I appeal to you, give your life to Him and experience the joy of heaven, both now and forever. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.